much going on. Let's get our Bibles out, open to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. So for months we've been studying through the book of 1 Corinthians. We're actually uh, worked our way all the way up to chapter 11. But some months ago we skipped these verses in chapter 7 because I wanted to come back to them now when we were doing uh, child dedication and when we were uh, a few weeks out from our marriage conference. And so this is an opportunity for us to go back and then look at these verses as they pertain to our uh, relationships together. Let me give you a little bit of context. Um, Corinth is a young church in a big metropolitan area, and it's a very pagan culture, much like Las Vegas, Nevada. And so you've got the Apostle Paul goes into Corinth, he brings the gospel there, and people get saved, and they get plugged into this little church, and they're trying to, you know, learn how to be Christians in this, you know, very pagan world surrounded by a lot of temptation and a lot of uh, challenges. And so along the way, you know, they're, they're trying to figure this out. They're struggling, but they're trying to figure it out. And so they, they sent word to Paul about some specific areas where they have really been struggling. They've got questions. And this is one of those areas. And so there were a couple things going on with regards to marriage in the church of Corinth that were causing problems. Now, we talked about what went on at the end of uh, chapter 6. I preached on those verses, and those verses deal with uh, sexual immorality that was going on in the church. And the reason for that was because there was a teaching that had sort of begun to infiltrate its way into the church that was saying, listen, it doesn't matter what happens in your body. The only thing that matters is what's spiritual. Your body's just going to burn up. So only the spiritual things matter. The physical things don't matter. So you can do whatever you want with your body and everything's going to be fine. Well, of course, that is clearly untrue. And so that's where Paul at the end of chapter 6 says, well, don't you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? And so he counters that belief by saying, your body is the place God has chosen to live. And so everything that we do with our bodies matters to God. He cares about those things, and they certainly have a bearing on uh, our witness as believers. Now, when we get to chapter 7, the part we're looking at today, where Paul's addressing the people on the other end of the spectrum. So you got these people over here that are saying, it doesn't matter what you do in your body, with your body. Then you've got another group of people that are saying, now, once you become a Christian, uh, the most spiritual thing to do is to practice abstinence. You know, is that we, we should all just not have physical relationships within the context of our marriage or whatever that may be because it's, uh, it's bad or it's taboo or whatever, uh, you know, people convince themselves of believing. And so as they're trying to sort this out, we drop in and we can learn some amazing things, whether we're single, whether we're married, whatever season of life we find ourselves in, these verses will speak directly to us. Now, the overriding sort of principle of this whole section of the Bible is this that God won't allow us to find true satisfaction in lesser things, but we do have an enemy who wants us to spend our lives trying. You see, what, are, what the enemy wants to do is to, to get us trying to uh, figure this out, trying to find true satisfaction, so jumping from one thing to the next to the next to the next. And as long as we're busy trying, we don't find where true satisfaction is and He's perfectly happy for us to do that. But God will not allow us to find what we're looking for in anything other than Him. He's made us for Himself. And so, Paul is going to speak directly to how exactly does this work out in the complexities 
of our relationships. Let's pray and ask God to help us, and then we'll look at the Scripture. Father, we thank you for this morning. What a blessing it is to celebrate children and the gift of children. Thank you for this church and for the commitment that we have to the next generation. We thank you for just the good favor that you have shown us in allowing us to be stewards of so much. We're so grateful. We do not take it lightly. God, help us to uh, rise to the challenge for your honor and glory. I thank you for each one here this morning. I thank you for uh, the opportunity that we have to hear from you and for you to speak into our lives individually. So will you help us? Will you give us ears to hear? Will you give us hearts to receive? And will you give us courage to obey? We promise to give you honor and glory in return. In Jesus' name, amen. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 1. The Bible says, now you need to read this in your Bible, or you know, you might say, is that in the Bible? Look, 1 Corinthians 7, 1. Now concerning the things of which you wrote me. So he's answering the question. It is good for a man not to touch a woman. See that? Now it's a good thing that that's not all he says or else we got a giant problem. Because here we just dedicated all these children and then the Bible says a man should not touch a woman. But clearly there's context here. Verse 2. Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. Let the husband render to his wife the affection due her and likewise also the wife to her husband. Now we've got some context here. Now, I know many of you, I'm reading from the New King James. Many of you use the ESV. Now, verse 3 in the ESV is a very interesting translation. It uses the word, it says, Let the, that the husband should give his wife her conjugal visits. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read the word conjugal I think about something that happens in a prison. It just totally throws me off. So I'm just saying that, you know, I, I don't know. That's just a strange way to translate that. But nonetheless, there it is. So here's what Paul's telling us. Right off the bat, this is what he wants us to see. He's, he wants us to see what happens... If, if we have, okay, married people, there's two, uh, there's a, a husband and wife in Corinth, and the gospel comes to Corinth, and one of them hears the gospel and becomes a follower of Jesus, but the other one doesn't. And so the, the saved spouse decides, well, now that I'm saved, we're, although we're married, we're not going to have a physical relationship anymore. That's what was going on. And so things become frigid around the house. Imagine the implications of this. In other words, why is Paul concerned about this? Because what do you think would start happening? You got... <clears throat> you got guys at work saying, hey, listen, whatever you do, do not let your wife go to that Christian thing down there because I got a friend and his wife went down there and she became a follower of that. And then, you know, now he's married to Elsa, the ice queen. And so you don't want her to do to become a Christian. That would be really bad. I mean, there's kids in there. I'm trying to, you know, meet them where they are. Right. That's a horrible witness. And it's unbiblical, and it's not true. But that's what they were doing. And so what Paul's concerned about is the witness. That's not what the Bible teaches. And so these verses may be uh, familiar to some of you or unfamiliar, but listen, they don't say what most people think they say. Paul wants us to know that whether we're married or whether we're single, we got to take responsibility for what we do with our bodies. But by doing that, he's saying that we need to take responsibility for how our bodies are part of the mission that God's called us to. 
that we never, ever have an excuse to blame someone else for our physical sin? Never. We're accountable and responsible for our bodies and for our purity and for, for the use of them. But listen, if you look down at verse 20, you'll see that when, when he gets to the end of this whole section where he's got, he's got examples of, of people who were married and one got saved and the other one didn't. He's got examples of single people who started following Christ. He's got example of people who started following Christ at different stages. Some were bond servants, some were free. All these different scenarios where the gospel comes into life, but he sums it up and says, let each one remain in the same calling in which he was called. In other words, when the gospel comes into your life, wherever it finds you in that place, you need to live out the gospel right there in that place. You need to be a witness for Christ in that place where you are. You and your spouse, you both know Christ. Then your relationship is an example of the gospel to the rest of the world. If you're married to someone who doesn't know Christ, the way that you treat them and relate to them is a witness for Christ to the rest of the world. If you're single, the way you handle yourself with regards to dating and the opposite sex is a witness to the rest of the world for the gospel. In other words, wherever you are, whatever circumstance and situation you're in, you must be a witness for the gospel. Listen, this is my testimony. I didn't grow up in church. I grew up an atheist. And I married the preacher's daughter. My mother-in-law is here. I'm so sorry. All those things I told you were lies to get you to believe that I would make a good son-in-law. They were all lies. I just wanted to marry their daughter. And here's the thing. I wasn't a Christian. And when the gospel found me, I was not in the situation that everyone in the church would want you to be in. But that's okay. You, listen, you live out the gospel where you are. And so here's what happened. My wife lived out the gospel before me, and look at what happened. But what if she wouldn't have? How would that have turned out? What would have happened if the church would have said, listen, you married the wrong person? Well, they would have been right, but I mean, and they would have said, you need to, you need to leave him. You need to get away from him. You need to. The answer is, wherever the gospel finds you, live out the gospel. See, this whole conversation this morning, listen, it won't, it won't be any more awkward than it's already been. It'll be better, trust me. Is this, the whole conversation is about the gospel. It's all about the gospel. And the church, listen, has not done a good job with this. In a lot of areas, we've really messed this up. Look at verse 4. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except with consent for a time that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer and come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I just want to say, Pastor Brian, was it 29 kids we dedicated today? We are awesome at this right here. This church excels at this truth right here. Right here. What was everybody doing during the quarantine? Never mind. So here's what Paul does. He calls husbands and wives to this totally radical opposite of what anybody would expect or think, he calls husbands and wives to mutual submission. He's 
introducing this concept that when you get married, you, you find out real quickly how much you need Jesus. Real quickly. You see, when you get married, I don't know what women think before they get married about what it's going to be like. I only know what men think. So we have this idea about marriage, man, and we got all these ideas. And then we get married, and here's what happened. When in, in a Christian marriage, once I got saved and I started living for Christ, I realized that everywhere I go and everything I do, I have this mirror with me that's reflecting all of my sinfulness back at me that knows all the things that I used to be able to keep a secret from everybody. You see, all the things that I used to be the only one that knew, now someone else knows. They know the, the truth, the real you. And it can be a little unnerving. And, it, and it, it's a constant reminder, man, I need Jesus a lot. And here's what we figure out. That we all married the wrong person. Because we are the wrong person. See, no one, this, this is the problem. I hate to burst your bubble. But you did not marry this one special person out of all the people in the world that God made exactly for you. That's not how that went down. That's not at all what the Bible teaches. You see, the Bible doesn't, if, if that were the case, then what would happen is the Bible would give you a, an equation, a list uh, a pathway, and God would say, now I made one person for you, and I made you for one person, and here's how you find that person in a sea of eight billion people. But that's not, think about what the Bible says. The Bible says, when you become a Christian, you can marry anybody you want as long as they're a Christian. Which means there's not just one person for you. You can marry anybody you want as long as they're a Christian. And you know what? It doesn't matter how long you wait or how diligently you search or how rigorously you screen them. As soon as you get married, you're going to realize you married the wrong person. Because it's hard. And you're the wrong person. And you're going to realize that you, don't, you didn't bring everything to the table that you needed to bring. The truth is that even if we did marry the right person, by the time the honeymoon was over, they would be sick of you. That's just the truth. If you're not dependent on, if you're not aware of what God is trying to show us in these verses. I mean, think about God's plan here. His plan is He's going to put... Two defective, naturally selfish, actively sinning, opposite gender people under the same roof and expect that to work. How is that going to work? The only way that's going to work is if there's something that is completely unnatural to us that makes that work. Mutual submission. You see, when two people devote themselves to putting the other person first, something amazing happens. These two incompatible people begin to blend together and begin to, to exemplify this picture of what God intends in marriage. But that's not natural. It's not natural for me to put my wife before me or for my wife to put me before herself. And you see, it's evident that something is deeply broken in the way that we relate to the opposite sex from the very beginning, from the early stages of life. You, you ever seen how a, a, a little boy, I mean, what does a little boy do when he first, you know, discovers that he likes a girl? 
He's so confused about what's going on. I think I was in the fourth grade. Up until the fourth grade, I knew, I mean, I had a little sister, and I tormented her every moment of my life. I knew there was boys, and I knew there was girls. But beyond that, my goal in life was just to avoid the girls with all the energy and effort that I had. And I've told you this story before where it was in the fourth grade. I was out on the playground, and I don't even know what happened. I don't even know. It just out of nowhere. There I am. I'm running around on the playground with my friends. I look across the playground, and I see this girl. Her name was Noelle. And she's over there by the monkey bars. And I looked at her, and I felt something I never felt before. All of a sudden, I thought, wow, I think I like her. And I didn't know how to process that feeling. And so I thought, I should go over there and tell her that I like her. So I walked straight over to her, and she's just standing there. I walked straight up to her and knocked her down. It seemed like the sensible way to me to tell her that I like her. And so she's, you know, laying in the dirt looking at me like, what is wrong with you, fool? And so she gets up and starts wiping the dirt off her, and I'm thinking, she now knows that I like her, see? And she then proceeds to take her belt off. And she has this rope belt that I vividly remember every detail about. It was this, you know, wound rope, and it had a square silver buckle with very defined corners on the buckle. And she started swinging that belt around with the buckle twirling around like this. And I thought, you know, this is like a peacock when they're mating. They go, whoo! I thought, she really likes me. She's swinging this thing like, she's going, I like him, I like him. I didn't know what was going on. And she swung that belt around and implanted that buckle in the back of my skull. Now, I don't mean that it implanted and then unplanted. I mean it implanted and stayed planted. And I ran to the office with her belt in my skull. And every kid on the playground watching. That was my sort of initiation to females. I mean, I can literally remember being a teenager and, and saying, man, I hope I'm not bald when I get older. Because everyone that sees me is going to go, what is that scar on the back of your head? And I'm going to go, well, I got beat up by a girl when I was in the fourth grade, and it's really scarred me, and I'm still struggling with that a whole lot. But you see, look, that's how it started, but I didn't get any better. It, it stayed broken. To this day, every Christmas, I get cold sweats when we sing the first Noel. I'm like, that's not my favorite song. See, the, the gospel says that when two people come together in marriage, that they must die. That they die to themselves. Now, that's the hardest thing for a person to do. It's to die to yourself. I've done a lot of weddings. And every time I do a wedding, I'm always struck by the fact that I'm standing here and I'm doing two funerals and a wedding at the same time. The two people have to die for this wedding to take place. That you're, you're no longer this individual person that can do what you want and think what you want. And, be, you, it, it. and so for the rest of your life, you're going to learn little by little, day by day, to die to yourself. Now, in a couple months, Lisa and I are going to celebrate 29 years of marriage. Now, you know, I think that's a pretty remarkable 
uh, accomplishment, especially because I know how hard it is to be married to me. So, you know, we made it 29 years. That's amazing. So I went home last night, and I said, Honey, you know, I'm, I'm, kids are asleep. I want to make sure I got her attention because I'm about to lay some info on her. I said, Honey, we have been married 252,480 hours. She said, Hmm. I'm like, hmm? That's all you got is hmm? And then she said, it seemed longer. <laughs> like, what? Man. Look at verse 6. But I say this as a concession, not as a commandment. Listen to what Paul says. For I wish that all men were even as I myself am, but each one has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. But I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it is good for them if they remain even as I am, but if they cannot exercise self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. So, so look at what Paul's saying. Paul is saying, look, if you're single, it's a gift to be single. Now, here's what we know about Paul. We know that Paul, in a previous life, before he became a follower of Jesus, was a member of the Sanhedrin. Now, in order to be a member of the Sanhedrin, you have to be married. There's no single men can be on the Sanhedrin. So, scholars believe he was married. Now, what happened? Did he become a Christian and his wife abandoned him? We don't know. Did she die and he was a widower? We don't know. But here's what we do know. We do know that he's saying, hey, if you're single, praise God. Look at all the opportunities that gives you to serve, to serve Christ, to be effective for the gospel. Look at all the things you can do because you're single. See, some people have the gift of singleness. God calls them to singleness, and it's a gift. But, you know, the church has not done a very good job at this. You know what the church does? The church makes single people feel uncomfortable. The church oftentimes doesn't make space for people to be single. But see, when you're single, something's wrong with you because you're single. Well, the Bible says that some people are gifted to be single. It's okay to be single. So around here, we, we work hard at it, but we don't do as good of a job as we can. See, I still hear people say things that make me mad. I get frustrated when I hear people asking a young lady in our church, so who are you dating? Why are you always asking her that? You know there's a lot of important, wonderful things about her besides who she's dating? that we ought to care about those things. You know, what we've done is we've perpetuated this myth that if you're single, you're incomplete. Well, that's just simply not true, and it's totally unbiblical. It's okay to be single. It's okay. Now, if you are single, then you need to have a biblical understanding of what singleness is. You see, I don't want a single person to believe that if they're you know, if they stay single, that that's bad. And I, but I also don't want them to want to get married because they believe that by getting married, marriage is going to complete them. And I definitely don't want them to think, well, I just want to get married because life is going to be so much easier if I have somebody to do life with. Who told you that? It's not going to be easier. See, being single is hard. Being married is hard. They're just two different kinds of hard, but they're both hard. But what the Bible says is whether you're single or whether you're married, live out the gospel in that context. 
Show the world around you what it looks like to follow Jesus. Show them that Jesus is good in your context. If you're married to an unbeliever, then the way you treat that unbeliever should show the world that Jesus is awesome. If you're both Christians, the way you treat each other should show the world that Jesus is awesome. If you're single, the way you relate to people around you should be that Jesus is awesome. That's what the Bible's teaching. See, we've allowed a whole lot of Hollywood mythology to infiltrate our theology. It's true. We have this lame romance movie idea of love. We have a twisted worldview of singleness. Listen. The Bible would say, you see, when, when, I, when I talk to a single person and they say, Pastor, how do I know if God's called me to be single? And I say, He has. And they go, how do you know that? And I say, because you're single. It's just a little clue. If God wanted you to be married, you'd be married. So if you're single and you're what single people feel all this pressure to get married, that is unbiblical. As if God is powerful enough to hold the universe in the palm of his hand, to uh, forgive the sin of the world, but he can't find you a spouse. You see that? And so what happens is single, Satan robs single people of their opportunity to glorify God because they're so worried about trying to find a spouse, and the church is piling on. It's wrong. It's wrong. If you're married to an unbeliever, listen, our church has always had, always had people who were married and come to church alone. And we work really hard to make sure that they understand, look, it's okay. My wife used to come to church alone. It's okay. You know what? We need to encourage them to live out the gospel, to go home and serve their spouse in such a way that they realize how amazing God is. See, it doesn't matter if you're married, if you're single, what your situation or circumstance is. The goal is the same. Matthew chapter 5, let your light so shine before men that they see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. That's the goal. That's our, that's our goal. And so if we're, if we're to shine our light, then the shiniest way for you and me to, to live is to give our lives away. That's what, that's what our relationships are about. It's not about getting what we can get for ourselves. It's not about we. Our relationships are a context for us to serve each other. To forego what we want for the benefit of the other. You see, if we believed what the Bible said, we would understand that the path to greatness, according to Jesus, is to be a servant. If you want to be great in the kingdom of God, you got to be a servant. That's the goal. Listen, if, if you're here this morning and you're single and you would like to be married, then here's the best piece of advice I could possibly give you. Devote this time of singleness in your life 
to perfecting the art of service. The absolute best preparation for marriage is servitude. Nobody spent more hours in premarital counseling than yours truly. And I promise you that when I figure out in the first couple of meetings with a new couple that one of them has just a, 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 a bent towards servitude. They're just a, they, they love to serve and they've grown up in a culture where that was uh, just nurtured and cared for. I am so encouraged. And if, if two people have a servant's heart and they marry, you better look out. It's going to be amazing. See, Jesus said in Luke 9 that if you want to save your life, you got to lose it. That's how you find it is lose it. It's mutual submission. It's, it's servitude. It's just having a heart that realizes it's not about me, it's about you. Verse 10, look at what Paul says. He says, now to the married I command, yet not I but the Lord, a wife is not to depart from her husband. But even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. And a husband is not to divorce his wife. Now, again, these two verses have been so misused historically by Christians. This is in no way, shape, or form a command a universal command against remarriage. It is, that is the furthest thing from what Paul's saying. What Paul is addressing here is a person who is married and who, in the context of marriage, is looking over the fence at somebody else and thinking, I want to divorce this person so I can marry that person. That's what the context is that he's addressing. And the reason... That God hates divorce, and the reason why divorce is such a, 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 a difficult conversation is because it's painful. I'm a product of divorce. I grew up in it. Many of you did. And here's what you know, the same thing I do. It hurts everybody. You know that? Yes. But here's the thing. It's a reality. So you know what we have to do? We have to do everything in our power to make sure that every marriage around us becomes everything that it can be for the glory of God. That's what we have to do. But we also have to understand that a lot of times, by the time the gospel gets into a situation, there's been a lot of brokenness and a lot of hurt and a lot of pain. Just like with me. And so... We need to understand that divorce is not the unpardonable sin. My goodness. God hates divorce because it hurts his kids. And God hates everything that hurts his kids. And we ought to hate things that hurt us and the people that we love. And we ought to do everything in our power. Listen. Marriages cannot die alone. That can't happen. When a marriage gets on life support, when a marriage gets on the rocks, when, when trouble comes, you got to have people around you. you got to have people in your life and in your context. You've got to do... If there's no other voices, you're going to be in trouble. Marriage is not something that you do on your own without the context of community. You've got to have others. We are a pilgrimage people. And... Marriage is a pilgrimage endeavor, and it takes all of us. And it's the little things that prevent the big things. Let me, let me just give you one little tip. You want to profoundly impact the divorce rate in the church and the people around you? Have zero tolerance now, for anybody putting down their spouse 
even in a joking context, it's wrong. It's the sign of trouble to come. Do not speak poorly of your spouse. And so when, when you hear that, see, I'll oftentimes hear that kind of thing, and it, it may not be in that moment, but I will catch you, and I'll pull you to the side as we're walking down the hall. I'm going to say, hey, you remember I, I overheard the other day, and I'm sure you didn't mean it, and you were just joking, but don't talk like that about your spouse. That's a terrible habit. And it's going to lead to destructive things in the future. See, that's just a simple thing we do today. It's not funny. That's not funny. You see, it's, life is complex, isn't it? You don't have to live long to figure that out. So whatever path you're on, whatever... Whatever place you find yourself in, here's what I know about it. It's, complex. It's, it's complex. And there's a lot of dynamics that go along with it. And it's not, you can't just have some cookie-cutter approach to everything. you got to get involved. But you have to understand, what is the purpose behind it? Well, what is it? Marriage is meant to drive us to Jesus. You know... The best times in my life have been in the context of marriage, but the hardest times in my life have been in the context of marriage. And the reason for that is that, that whether it's good times or whether it's hard times, marriage, listen, when it's hard in marriage, it drives you to Jesus. But what about when it's good? You see, when it's good, the realization should hit us that why is it good? It's not because I'm good at this. It's not because I deserve this. If it's good, it's only the grace of God. And that drives me to Jesus. Thank you. Thank you that, that, that somebody put up with me for 29 years. Thank you, Lord. That drives me to Jesus. Singleness is meant to drive us to Jesus. My goodness, it, my heart goes out to the singles among us today. I don't think it's ever been a harder time to be single than today. But you know what? It's okay. Let it drive you to Jesus because at the end of the day, life is meant to drive us to Jesus. Listen, you... We, we like to convince ourselves that we've got a handle on things. And everybody starts squirming when the preacher starts talking about the truth, about the fact that we don't really know what tomorrow holds. We don't know what's going to happen. We just don't know. We don't know who in this room is one split-second drunk driver crossing the lane away from a funeral. One telephone call, terminal cancer, boom. That's just the reality of, the, of life. God knew that. God knew the world that we were going to uh, live in. You know why? Because He came to the world that we're in. He lived in this world. He walked in what we're walking in. And so the gospel is made to, to, to guide us and to walk beside us through this life and to drive us to Him. We don't have it. We don't have it. We haven't licked it. We haven't figured it all out. I mean, let's just be honest. So the truth of the matter is we... We, we look around our lives and we realize, you know what? I want to be the best example to the people behind me. 
But I got to have people in front of me to look towards. The end of the first service, a lady came up to me out in the foyer. And, uh, you know, we talk most Sundays, and she gave me a hug, and this is what she said. She didn't say anything. She just looked at me and said, you know what? You know how long it's been? And I said, how long? And she said, 67 years. And I said, wow. And she started crying. And she said, I still can't believe that he stuck with me for 67 years. And I said, how old were you when you became a follower of Christ? Well, I said, which one of you became a follower of Jesus first? And she said, him. And I said, how old were you? And she said, 31. Now you, if you're married 67 years, by 31, you've been married a long time. And she said, but he didn't give up on me. And God didn't give up on me. And here we are 67 years later. See, I need that example in front of me. Because you know what? I might start believing, hey, my 29 years are looking pretty good. Until I talk to her and I'm like, I'm a loser. Man. Verse 12. But to the rest I, not the Lord, say, if any brother has a wife who does not believe and she is willing to live with him, then let him not divorce her. And a woman who has a husband who does not believe if she is willing to live with her, well, don't divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. But if the unbeliever departs, well, let them depart. A brother or a sister is not under bondage in such cases. But God has called us to peace. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? You see, as we end this morning, this is what I want you to understand. Is that I know that there's a lot of us in the room who feel unworthy. Because life's hard and it's complicated. And so circumstances and situations swirl around us and maybe things don't go the way we had planned or don't go the way we had hoped or however that works out. And then somehow we feel disqualified by that. We feel unworthy. And so we... We sort of back away from the very thing we should be pressing into. This is exactly what Paul's saying here. He's saying, listen, you have no idea of the power that you have when you live for God in the context that you're in. You see, we would never even use this language. You, you would never say, well, you know, I saved my wife or, uh, or my wife saved me. Or, But the Bible is saying when you are in a relationship and you begin to live for Christ in that, no matter how broken it is, no matter how tainted it is, no matter how many regrets are in the past, no matter how many, and here's the thing, no matter how many people look down on you because of whatever it is, here's the deal. You live for Jesus today, and it has profound implications on eternity. Thank God that my wife 
didn't just turn her back on old sinner Tony and say, what a mistake that was. But she lived out the gospel in front of me. She showed me what it looks like when Jesus reigns in someone's life. Wherever you are this morning, please be fully present in whatever context you're in and let the gospel shine through you. Because I am telling you, I implore you to listen. We never know who's watching. You have no idea who's watching you. They're watching how you handle the complexities of your situation. They're watching. They're watching what you do when life bumps you off course. How do you handle that? They're watching. Married, single, widowed, whatever the context is, it's an opportunity for you to profoundly impact eternity for the kingdom of God by living faithfully the gospel. So let's stand. We're going to have a moment of response. And here's what I'm asking you to do. I'm asking you to just consider the things that we talked about this morning and consider some, some real, tangible, practical ways that you can respond to this reality. Like if you're married, how can you, how can you better serve your spouse? If you're single, how can you maximize the opportunity that you have right now? If you're widowed, how is the position that you're in right now enabling you to be able to do things that you otherwise wouldn't be able to do? Now, we're going to open up the altar for people to come and pray. Maybe you want to come and pray with your wife or pray with your spouse where you are or come and just thank God for allowing somebody to love you and stay beside you but here's what I know no perfect people in this room but we serve a perfect God so let's give ourselves let's devote ourselves to being as much like him in whatever relational context we're in as we possibly can be and let's see what he'll do with that opportunity. Father, thank you for each one here this morning. Thank you for every family represented. Thank you for each person, whether married, single, divorced, widowed, whatever it is, Lord. Thank you for that.